It's not uncommon that we expect bad things to happen because we're inundated by the worst things happening on the planet and we get used to it and we expect when we turn on the radio or turn on the news or turn on Yahoo or turn on Google, we're going to see more the next day and we'll watch again to see if the worst happens, to see if the bottom falls out, to see if it gets worse and worse and we we begin to expect that in the news and in our lives. Not just in the news, some... Uh, Some of you plan to retire or planned to retire about 10 years ago, maybe 2009, maybe 2010, and you were working towards that goal, and then all of a sudden 2007 and 2008 happened. Maybe you had to work a few extra years. Maybe you're still working because of that. Maybe you lost your job. The Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas did a study, and they determined that the annual or the estimated lifetime earning potential of every adult went down by $150,000 just because of the recession. Some of you might have bought a house in 2005, 2006, 2007, and all of a sudden you notice that your payment is going up and the value of your home is going down, and, and some of you lost homes. Some of you are still trying to undo the things that were done during that season. So the problem is, is not just that that was a bad thing, and it was, or not just that the news sometimes is discouraging, although it is, The problem is that this pessimism bleeds into our faith and into our relationship with God. And we begin to expect that we're going to wake up one day and God's favor is going to have moved on and we're going to be left with nothing, empty-handed. That he's going to foreclose on us, so to speak, and move on and we're going to be left empty-handed. As we consider this call to stand firm, I just want to remind us that it's not a call to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make things work because we can will it to work. It's not a call to live our best lives by just having positive thinking and believing the good in ourselves and in everyone else and always seeing the positive and ignoring everything else. It is fundamentally a call to look at the person and the ways and the character of our Father above and beyond our circumstances and to live daily in the truth that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You see, the primary purpose of the book is to show us the supremacy of God so that we discover as a people, so that we discover individually that he's trustworthy, that we can trust him with our lives. This morning we're going to jump to Daniel 7. We're skipping 5 and 6 because 7 and 8 happen chronologically before 5 and 6. So we're not ignoring those passages. We will come back to those passages, but we'll do 7 today, 8 next week, and then we will go back to 5 and to 6. Now keep in mind, if you're the people of Judah, if you're the southern kingdom of the divided nation of Israel, you've been subservient to pagan kings for a while now. Because it was either Egypt or Babylon taking turns, uh, taking tribute from you and installing kings and forcing your hand, forcing allegiance, right? And so we might even see Daniel and his friends as tribute to Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar gets tired of this arrangement and comes in and says, this area is mine, takes the most valuable assets, is going to come back 10 years later and defeat the city, is going to come back 10 years later after that and destroy everything, And so if you're one of God's chosen people at this point in history, if you're in Babylon in captivity, or maybe you've been left in the land with absolutely nothing, you're asking yourself, will we ever be the chosen people of God again? You're asking, will we ever be a nation again? 
Will we ever have a king? And ultimately, you're fully aware that you've blown it. And your question is, is, has God given up on me? Has God given up on us? Is he stronger than our enemies? And will he keep his word? Has he given up on me? Is he stronger than my enemies? And will he keep his word? Here's a couple texts from 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Chronicles 7. We'll put these on the board that give you a sense of some of the promises these people have been clinging to, they're familiar with and anticipating for quite some time. 1 Kings 9, 5 says this, Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That was God's promise to Solomon. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. We know one day the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come from this line. So if you're an Israelite at this point, you're wondering, can God come through? Can he? Will he? keep his word in spite of the fact that we've not kept ours. Second Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. You think they knew that text? Do you think they were praying pretty regularly? Do you think they were saying, okay, Lord, does God hear me? Is he more powerful than my enemies? Has he given up on me? Will he keep his word? That jumps us into chapter 7. I want to kind of run us through the first 15 verses. Uh, This is the description of a dream that Daniel sees. So from a literary standpoint, we're at a pivotal spot in the book. We're moving from a narrative, which is mostly third person, and a description of events. And now in 7 verse 2, we're going to see we go to the first person as Daniel is actually describing what he sees. These are the visions. Uh, It's apocalyptic in nature, which means it's talking about the future, and it's meant to bring hope now. As we start, if you have your Bibles in, in Genesis, or Dennis, Daniel 7, sorry, uh, we're at the very first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is one of the weak kings that followed the great Nebuchadnezzar before the downfall of the Babylonian Empire in 539. So Daniel is laying in bed, and he has these dreams. And he sees four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And it might be the Mediterranean Sea. There's precedence for that. It also might be used to reference four winds, the four corners of the earth stirring up the world and just a global and rampant wickedness. Isaiah 57, 20 compares the wicked to those tossed at sea. So there's precedence for that too. But we basically see that the world has been allowed to go its own way. The Lord is allowing the sinfulness of people to run its course. He has dignified them with choice And their choices have stunk. And now they're paying the price as we see the winds coming from the four corners of the world. Then verse 4. Here's where it starts to get interesting. Four beasts come out of the sea, one after another. And he's going to give us descriptions of these beasts. And he's going to use the words like a lot because he's trying to figure out what he's looking at. It says the first was like a lion with eagle's wings. Its wings were plucked off and was made to stand on the ground like a man 
on two legs, and it was given the mind of a man and a mouth. The second beast, verse 5, was like a bear, and it says that one side of the bear was raised up so that it was higher than the other, and on top of that, it had three ribs in its mouth, devouring its prey. And verse 5 says, it was commanded to arise and devour much flesh. So I'm kind of imagining my kids eating spaghetti at this moment. But that's what this bear looks like as Daniel sees it come out of the earth or come out of the sea and it's told to arise and devour much flesh. And so the four beasts are going to mirror the four parts of the statue that we talked about in chapter 2. You remember the head of gold, which was Babylon. Remember the chest and the arms of silver that were the Medes of the Persians. And so it's interesting here that we see an animal where one side is higher than the other because that's two parts, Medes and the Persians, and the Persians were the more dominant of the two. Verse 6, after that, the third beast came out, and it's like a leopard with four wings, and it says the beast had four heads, and rule was given to it. Verse 7, the fourth beast, Daniel describes it as terrifying, as strong, Teeth that were iron. Later in verse 19, we'll see uh, claws made of bronze. It was terrifying. It was strong. Devoured everything. And then it says it had ten horns. And remember in chapter 2, we saw the statue had ten toes. So here's that, that number again. And it becomes larger. Or, and then a small horn grows out of the ten. And it becomes larger than the ten. And three of the ten horns are uprooted as it's coming out of these horns. And it grows to be larger than the rest, and it has the eyes and the mouth of a man. If that's not weird enough, now that the scene shifts in verse 9, and now Daniel sees a throne, and he sees what might be like a chariot with wheels and with fire, and he sees one sitting on the throne called the Ancient of Days. God the Father takes the seat with clothing white as snow, hair like pure wool, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah 1, 18 describes a parallel picture using these same terms. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so we see this picture of the Father, the Ancient of Days, and moral purity and holiness described in the uh, white as snow and in the wool. Very quickly, then judgment happens, and the beast is destroyed in the fire. And then in verse 13, it says, One like the Son of Man rides in on the clouds, is presented to the Ancient of Days, and then is given power and dominion over all the nations of the world, and an everlasting kingdom that will never be uprooted or destroyed. So that's Daniel. That's his dream. You can imagine if that you had that sort of dream, you might be a little bit startled. Let's pick up together in verse 15. And I want us to walk through uh, Daniel's response. And I want us to see just from the very beginning that we see that God's power is not deterred by world leaders. God's power is not deterred by world leaders, nor circumstances, nor his enemies, nor those who oppose his people. Uh, but we see here in the text that God's power is not deterred by world leaders. Leaders. Let's read verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Daniel chapter 7 together. Verse 15 says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. It seems like that could be uh, an understatement. 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Daniel's terrified by what he sees. He sees massive destruction, the uprooting of kings, the uprooting of nations. Everything seems to get worse, more immoral, more destructive than the last. And Daniel happens to be a high-ranking official in one of the most, the most powerful nation on the planet. Daniel's probably interested. Hey, what's going to happen? What does this mean for Babylon? What does this mean for me? He's terrified. We see the first beast corresponds to that head of gold, Babylon, with their wickedness. Interesting that in this chapter, unlike chapter 2, we see that this beast has its wings plucked. It's set down on the earth like a man. It's humbled, right? It thinks it's a god and it's humbled like a man. And what did Ricky just preach about last week from Daniel chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar being removed from the king. Or from the throne, right? Being removed, being powerless, discovering that all of his power, all of his accomplishments, all of his might, that with all of that, he was still a puppet on God's string, that he was still under the supreme rule of the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar kept saying, I'm God. And what we see from Yahweh is Yahweh saying, I am the one true God. And, and these, these kings, these pagan kings had many gods. It wasn't a big deal for them just to absorb Yahweh into their idea of many gods and, and maybe worship him too. And God says, no, 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 I'm not one of a bunch of gods. I am the God. If he were speaking today, he might be saying, I'm not someone you fit into your schedule. I'm the one your schedule revolves around. He might not say, he might say, I'm not someone you give some of your time and some of your energy and some of your resources to. He might say, I'm the one that owns everything that you have. He might say, I'm not the one that you give attention to when there's nothing else going on, when there's no football on and there's nothing better to do. He might say, I'm the one you never take your eyes off of. We go into the second beast who corresponds to the chest and arms, the Medes and the Persians, right? The third beast, uh, the bronze, the midsection, the Greeks, described in chapter 7 as like a leopard with four wings. Now, this is kind of an interesting one. And for those of you that like looking into the future and like trying to understand in times and like to kind of cross-reference current events with those things, it's hard to do and it's challenging. But one of the interesting things here is this beast with four wings and four heads must have made no sense whatsoever to Daniel. But when we understand it's the Greeks and we compare that to Daniel chapter 2, and then we start to study a little bit of Greek history, we understand that when Alexander the Great dies, when the empire or his part collapses in like 329 or somewhere around there, 323 B.C., 250 years after Daniel's getting this message, we understand that his kingdom wasn't passed to an heir, was it? It was passed to four generals. So even with something as detailed and as meticulous as how a kingdom would break up, we see incredible accuracy, incredible detail from the Lord here to Daniel, 250 years 
before it would take place. I hope as we see the Lord's accuracy, his understanding and perfect knowledge of all things future, that we begin to understand that we are not just walking from random circumstance to random job to random relationship, that our God is intimate and involved and active in all of these things. That he has something for us in each season. Something to discover about who he is. Something to put in our spiritual tool belt. Something to do as an extension of his hands and his feet. Every single season. Every single relationship. No ruler, no person, no circumstances, no matter how dark, can deter his power to continue to work. Isn't it hard to see God at work in our lives sometimes? Like, isn't it really, really hard sometimes to have the sense that God is working and he's near and his power is undeterred? And part of that is because we often are fully aware that we have strayed from the path that he has for us. We're often fully aware that we have strayed from the path that he has for us. And we just have the sense that you can't fix this. It's broke. We met some friends from California last week and Uh, took a couple days off, and one of the things that we did with the kids, uh, and there was six of them under eight or under nine on bikes, and so you can imagine how that went. There were a lot of wrecks and a lot of crying, Um, but we took them on a bike ride, and it was a really nice paved, asphalted trail. It was pretty safe. I wasn't leading for most of the the ride, but towards the end, I started to lead a little bit, and that was a bad idea, and so what happened is we got off the nice paved trail path and got onto the sand. And so if it's challenging for our young kids to pedal on the asphalt, it's really challenging to pedal in the sand. And so I'm fully aware now that we're on the wrong path, that this is not where we want to be. Uh, I'm walking my bike because in all of my manliness, I can't pedal in the sand. Fully aware that we're on the wrong path. Pedaling is getting harder and harder. And at this moment and height of frustration for me, Someone yells out, bear. <laughs> now, some of you would not like to see a bear. If you know my wife, nothing better could possibly happen in life than to see a bear in the wild. Her mother was the same way. She grew up, my wife grew up going to Mammoth for summer vacations, and they would go and look for bears every night, get in the car and drive behind every restaurant. The reason that the do not feed the bear signs are on trees and are everywhere is because of my wife and because of her mother. They feed bears. So for us to see a bear was the highlight of the trip. And we saw a mother was like 20 yards away and then two cubs way up in the tree. And the mother scampered up the tree to the cubs and they're running back and forth on the branches. And you know you're in California because no one pulls out a gun, right? Everyone pulls out a cell phone, a camera. So instantly we're reminded, oh yeah, we're not in Oregon anymore. This is California. And so for me, it was just a vivid reminder that even though I thought I was on the wrong path, even though I was fully aware that it was my fault that I was on the wrong path, that it still put us in the right position to see something really incredible and to have the highlight of our trip. So I just want us to see as you think about all of the ways you're fully aware that you've made a mess of things. The Israelites are in the same boat. We've got to understand that the Lord's power is not deterred by evil. The Lord's power is not deterred by our own 
evil inside of us. And sometimes when we think we're on the wrong path, when the pedaling in life seems the hardest, we're on the verge of God doing something really special. So keep going. The second thing that we see in this text is that the Lord's plans are not deterred by evil, not deterred by uh, evil rulers, not deterred by the evil of the enemy. Uh, Let's read verses 19 through 25. I want you to see what happens to this fourth beast. I want you to see what happens to this little horn that grows up in the midst of it and dominates all the other horns. Verses 19 through 25. Daniel says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped out what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn had the eyes and a mouth that spoke great Things that seemed greater than its companions, and as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different. From all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of the kingdom of ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time times and a half. So now we get to this fourth beast in this little horn. And with the fourth beast being Rome, I've got a map here that you can see how different it is from, how different it was from the previous um, kingdoms. It's huge. Uh, It stretches from North Africa. You can see on the map uh, huge parts of of Europe and even into Western Asia. And so you can just see how much land that's in, as the map says, 117 AD, about the height of the Roman Empire's uh, land grab. But what's interesting is, again, Daniel's hearing this 550 BC or so, something around there. And Western Rome is not going to fall until 476 AD. The eastern part of the empire is not going to fall until the mid 15th century. So what Daniel is What is being described to Daniel here in this vision, some of these things are things that don't unfold for 2,000 years. And then we see the ten horns. This little horn is kind of confusing. uh, That grows into a, a big horn. And interestingly enough, Revelation 13 speaks to this. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 13. I want you to see a little bit of the description about this small horn that in 2 Thessalonians is described as the man of lawlessness in Romans 13, or Revelation 13 described as the beast and in 1 John 2.18 described as the Antichrist. Revelation 13.5-7 and I want you just to see the power of the Lord over evil. 
Look for all of the occurrences where it is crystal clear that the beast has been given power and authority for a limited amount of time. As much damage, as much destruction, as much pain, and as much suffering is going to be brought by the Antichrist. Never once will he unseat the Ancient of Days. Never once will God's kingdom, God's purposes or intentions be in question. Revelation 13, 5 through 7. And the beast was given a mouth. There it is, given a mouth. Verse 5. Uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And here it is again. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. Also, it was, there it is again, allowed, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Verse 7, an authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. It was allowed, it was given authority, power over every tribe, every nation to make war against the saints and even to have power over the saints. That's ugly. This is Daniel's worst nightmare come true. This will be God's people's worst nightmare come true. And we see that even at the height of the enemy's power, God is still in control. If you have your Bibles, turn a few pages over to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 is going to mention those same ten horns. And I just want you to see the continuity throughout Scripture. Sometimes when something's unclear, we stop reading. And I want just to encourage you, when something is unclear, that usually means there's something really interesting that God is doing. And so instead of stop reading, keep reading. Revelation 17, starting in verse 12. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So we're understanding that the ten toes on the statue of chapter 2, the ten kings, the ten horns mentioned here in chapter 7 of Daniel, uh, that these are yet unfulfilled aspects of the prophecy to Daniel, yet unfulfilled aspects of the end times timeline. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. We see that God has power over this evil, and even at the height of the enemy's power, never once are God's purposes Thwarted. Never once are God's intentions undermined. Now, one of the things that's challenging for us is we don't have God's point of view. So we look around and, and we see what we see and we get discouraged. We go back to that pessimism thing. We look around and we see what we see and we take it at face value and it doesn't seem to fit what we want. It doesn't seem to be going according to our plan and, and so that's discouraging. Genesis uh, 15 describes for us a pattern that we see in Scripture when it looks like the Lord is slow, when it looks like the Lord's not 
working, when it looks like his plans are not unfolding. Genesis 15, 16 is God talking to Abraham, and he tells Abraham look, that he's going to bring his people to the promised land, but he's not going to do it until the sin of the native people, the Amorites, is complete. In other words, he tells Abraham, I've got this land for your people, but I'm not going to give it to you until the people in the land, until their sin has reached a fever pitch, and I bring judgment upon them. You can read about their sin if you want in Leviticus 18. It's so vile that Leviticus 18.25 says the land actually is going to vomit them out because they've so defiled the land. And then we continue with the story with Joshua and with Caleb and we understand that the Lord gives them the land. And we see that sometimes God's judgment takes the shape of allowing people's sin and wickedness to continue unchecked so that they discover that what they think they wanted isn't all that desirable so that they discover so that we discover that we don't have all the answers so that we discover as we make a mess of things how beautiful the offer of a father who promises to rescue who promises to heal who promises to make all things new there's that that parable of the prodigal son comes into play where we see the father standing open-armed with us, waiting for us, wanting us to return to him, even at the height of the dysfunction and the sin that we've brought upon ourselves. Isaiah 26, 9 and 10 is an interesting passage also that adds to this idea. Isaiah 26, 9 talks about how in judgment, in God's judgment, people start to learn righteousness, God's righteousness and their lack of of righteousness. It's when we're in judgment, when we're down because of our own choices that we understand how righteous God is, how we've missed the mark, and it draws us to him. In contrast with Isaiah 26.10, which says, when the wicked receive favor, they learn nothing. When the wicked receive favor, they learn nothing. I think there's a compelling case to be made that the Lord is waiting, even right now, creating space for people to return, for people to repent, allowing people's sin to continue, allowing people's sin to run its course in our lives, in their lives, so that we discover the degree to which we are unworthy of our Savior, so that we discover His holiness, His righteousness, where it whets our appetite, it creates a hunger for him because we realize that we've made a mess of things. One of the things that's fascinating to me about how we relate to God is he's got a plan. It's a good plan. He loves us. He's got power over all things. Uh, We don't love well. We don't have power over just about anything, and we certainly don't know what the future holds. But when things get difficult for us, we go to the Lord and say, make sense of this and fix it. Make sense of this and fix it. So, The two things, our control and our desire for comfort, that most keep us shrouded in spiritual darkness. And it's what we demand of God every time things start to get a little shaky. Every time there's a little bit of turbulence in life, we demand, God, fix this. God, show me what you're doing. And again, we see that pessimism in our lives where we expect God to foreclose on us. We expect to wake up one day in his favor to have moved on. 
Rather than demanding an explanation from God, I want to just encourage us to ask him for faith. I want to encourage us to ask him to help us cling to him in the turbulence. I want us to ask him to make us responsive as his spirit leads, rather than demanding clarity, rather than demanding an answer, rather than demanding he fix everything. The last few, chap- few verses of Daniel, 26 through 28, show us that God's promises are true forever, that God hasn't forgotten his people, God hasn't forgotten us, that his promises were true to them and will hold forever, and his promises are true for us and will hold forever. Verses 26, 27, and 8 say this, But the court shall sit in judgment. This is after the beast has been thrown into the fire. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Here, Daniel says, is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matters in my heart. In Daniel, so far, first six chapters, we have seen God's power over religious oppression when Daniel and his friends were told to eat the food that they knew that they shouldn't and God was with them. We see God's power over threats and danger and harm when Daniel's friends were thrown into the fire and God was with them there. Now we see, as we ask ourselves these same questions, has God forgotten about me? Has his favor moved on? Will he come through? Does he have power over my enemies, over our circumstances, over evil? That his word can be trusted now and forever and ever. Amen. And so a question that I might put to you this morning is, where do you need to hear from the Lord, you can trust me? Where do you need to hear from the Lord, you can trust me for your future? For me, I, I instantly think about kids, salvation for them, their future families, their future spouses, when they do their job and give me grandkids one day, those grandkids, their salvation, their future spouses, it terrifies me. Middle school terrifies me. High school terrifies me. Trusting the Lord for the health of our church, for the well-being of this group of people trying to show Christ to the world. That it's His church, that we're His people, that He knows our future, that the good aspects of it will be sweet blessings to us, hopefully, and others, and the difficult aspects of our time together as we turn to them, that he's got a plan, and he's going to show us himself faithful in that too. Where do you need to hear from the Lord this morning? You can trust me with your future. You can trust me with your future. A couple of observations, and we'll wrap up. Some of us feel like the Israelites this morning. We've made a mess of things and we're wondering, will God be faithful to us even though we realize and recognize that we have not been faithful to him? And so we're reminded that God is the master craftsman and we see in this text that he makes a beautiful work work out of scrap wood. That he makes beautiful work out of scrap wood. We've got to understand that it is the Lord's intentions to use the consequences of our sin to keep us 
from continuing in it, to keep us from continuing in it. We also tend to think that he's inactive or passive in culture or even worse, powerless in culture. We often look at God and think he's slow, don't we? He's slow. Speed is often a matter of perception. You know, the the jumbo airliners that fly overhead are going like 500 miles an hour, but to us, they look slow. And so when you look around and you think, is God at work? Is he passive and active, powerless in culture, or just plain slow? Often it's a matter of vantage point. And the Lord sees the whole story, and we're just reminded that we're human and that he's God. He's God, and we're not. Finally, there's a lot of repetition in this book, chapter 2 and chapter 7, and there's a whole bunch more. Uh, Repetition is something that we want to pay attention to in God's word. It often means that the Lord is driving home a point home. It often means there's something to pay attention to. Listen to what uh, is recorded in Genesis 41 about a time when God gave Pharaoh two dreams to drive home a point. It says this, it says, in the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, this were, these are the dreams that preceded Joseph being elevated to second in command. It says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams meant that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, your future is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it out. Where do you need to hear this morning from the Lord? You can trust me with your future. Let's pray.